My name is Henry Cornelius, and I must make this quick. Last week you watched my film, Genevieve. I hope you liked it very much. It was a very good film that I enjoyed filming when I was filming it. But it's very difficult here in heaven for a shash African like a man. Because for some reason, God is anti-shash African. I don't know if you know this. Hmm. Yes. So much so he changed our accents. And we sound like silly people in heaven. That's why I'm talking like this. This is not as good as South African accent as you might expect. No. And, I'm, and now I know why. And also, he is making us in heaven. He's milking you? No, he's making us. He's making us fight battles against the Zulu. Oh, no. Constantly. Oh, no. Like my ancestors. And we, we lose. Oh, Every course. single time. Of course. They have you outnumbered. Yeah. So... Anyways, I, I must be quick because I must get back to help my unit. Uh, but I want you to uh, uh, thank you, actually. I want to thank you for watching my movie about the CD car. Yes, well, thank you for making the movie about uh, the CD car. I hope you saw uh, my director's cut. Where the car talk? Uh, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. You didn't see the director's cut with the car talk? Is it called Herbie? <sighs> yeah, yeah. If I was, and, and then they, they, they stole it. They stole it from me. They, they, they renamed the car in the movie Genevieve because nobody say it very often. It was what shit. You did be okay. I, I've been shot with many, many balls. I, I noticed that like you, you have a drink there and every time you take a drink it, it comes out yeah, of you in like a bunch of little waterfalls. It's, it's, it's the wine and the blood, they, they, steal, they steam up. But I must go. But uh, uh, thank you. I, uh, not many people have seen my movie in the past uh, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you guys are good guys. Uh... uh Long live White South Africa. Uh, goodbye. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that at the end there. Was he a racist? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, was he? I don't know. I, I don't know his history. It was a little dicey. I don't know. He did support White South Africa. <laughs> it, was a, it was a weird decision. To, yeah, to make I mean, especially now, you know, so long after apartheid. That's a weird thing to I, say. I just want to state for the record, uh, neither Jason nor I support apartheid. No, we've long been on record as not not uh, uh, supporting a regime that, that does that to any people, mm. especially black people uh, in that situation. Yeah. We, we, I mean, and we bravely stated that um, as of 2017, yeah, that we are against the apartheid movement in South Africa. That at, is in the li- that is in the parliamentary library. You can check that. You can look that up in the catalog. Mm-hmm. It's filed away. Or you can check it out online at Hoopla. That's yeah. Hoopla, your online library archive for all things library. That's right. But enough about Genevieve and that stupid car. We're moving on. You're Jason, and I'm Brendan. What? I don't think that's how that works. Uh, we're talking about... Well, actually, this is a podcast. We I get worse at the introductions every week. This is a podcast called For Screen. And Contra. And Jason, we are going forward on the list here. We are continuing our journey. We are, we are talking about a, a, a movie that is fairly high up the list. Mm. Uh, but before we talk about that, we need to read some comments about last week's movie, Genevieve. Lots of comments from some listeners uh, regarding this movie, Genevieve. I also asked, uh, I also asked the good people um, if they thought this was potentially one of the first road movies. Because we talked about that with this, and uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. All right, you know what? <laughs> I don't know who can see what you're doing, but I know everyone knows you're being an asshole. It makes me laugh, and that was for me. Oh, good. So I'll, 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 I'm good now. I'm... <laughs> Umbrella, umbrella, umbrella. Our first comment comes from Davey Morrison, who says, It's great. 
So charming, although I'd say It Happened One Night is definitely a road movie. And that was 1934, so that actually would predate this movie. It Happened One Night? Mm-hmm. It's not a movie about the Titanic? What am I thinking of? You're thinking of One Night at McCool's. Nope. Uh, what Sorry. the fuck is that Titanic movie called, Brendan? Uh, the Night After. The Night Before. Mm. The Seth Rogen comedy. No. Mm. Nighthawk. Mm, that'd be a cool title for a movie about the Titanic, that is a, I guess. Oh, I guess that's Ladyhawk. It was, it was an episode of Knight Rider? I could look this up. We have the internet at my, my behest, but and I know my, re, uh, my readers, my listeners, my listeners, not your listeners, Brendan, my readers and my listeners are listening right now, and they're screaming into the microphone, telling me what the name of that fucking movie is, which is based on a book. Hey, Siri, what's that fucking movie about the Titanic called? <laughs> Titanic. Sorry, I can't search what something is about. But I can search by title, actors or directors, and categories like horror or action. Titanic, one night at. A night to remember? Brendan got it seconds before Google did. Yeah, night to remember, baby. So, With a K. Wait, which comment am I reading? The second one. second one. All right, Wickham Clayton, another uh, old friend of the podcast. I literally just watched it last week. <coughs> I just wanted the women to drop their shitty petty men and run off together. That's the happy ending. But otherwise, very charming. Love the color cinematography and music. Thank you, Wickham. Yeah, yeah, right. That would have been the better... That's the modern version, that they run off together and have a lovely life. Yeah, they raise sheep it. in Montana or something. I'm into it, yeah. Jason. Uh, Andrew Littlefield says, It was fun, but it is a very much a men will have their childish obsessions while their wives shake their heads kind of thing. The movie manages to admire the men's crazy hobby while also being sympathetic to the wives. How did this movie not serve as the basis for, like, a home improvement TV movie in the 90s? Like, that Tim Taylor would have to, like, build some sort of car and, oh, 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 and then they have a race. Like, like him and Al and Wilson, they have, like, wacky races and they have to, and then they could have put out, like, a video game based on it where it was, like, a kart racer and you played those. Because the actual home improvement video game on Super Nintendo, you, like, was you fought dinosaurs one of the better game, One of the best games ever made? Well, in an esoteric sense, yes. Tim Taylor's running around fighting dinosaurs for some reason. You don't remember that in the show? Uh, I may have missed that episode. You didn't watch the crossover with Home Improvement and Dinosaurs. No, I remember that one episode with <laughs> Dave <laughs> That was the dumbest joke I've ever made on this podcast. Yeah. Well, but, and it was specifically for a person of like exactly our age uh, who watched TV in so, that specific era of somebody, the early 90s. Somebody who knows the themes to both TV shows. I'm the baby, gotta love me. Yeah, from Home Improvement. Yeah, exactly. That's, Jonathan, what, that's, what, that's what Jonathan Taylor Thomas said all the time. Yeah. I'm the baby, gotta love me. Yeah. And he wasn't even, he was the middle kid. And then Earl Sinclair was like, <laughs> I love that Earl Sinclair briefly came back into the internet's consciousness a few years ago when somebody put out a, uh, a video of him dancing to uh, Hypnotized by Notorious B.I.G. Do you know that that show ended with everyone dying? Yeah, I know. It was one of the best TV endings ever. It's up there with fucking St. Elsewhere. Oh... <laughs> uh. All right, what does Adam Yudras say? We may Adam have lost Yudis. the point completely of what we were talking about before, but fuck it. That's what our podcast is about. Uh, Adam Yudras says, I loved it. It's very entertaining and fun. The whole crew seems to work together very well. The story keeps a great pace, and the laughs come often even better than Carry On Up the Kyber. Oh, Adam, you've watched it well. Uh, that is fighting words. To see. That is fighting words. I think uh, it's going to jump to my number one as soon as we see it. I, I have to imagine. I have to imagine. Um... All right, our last comment here, Jason, is from 
Genevieve Clark. Ah, namesake. Wonderful. She says, didn't even know this existed, but now I have to watch this. Absolutely. You do. I mean, you'll probably be disappointed because, I mean, it's a car, but... I mean, there's, yeah, there's so many connotations there that you probably don't want to think about. And they also, I guess because it's an older movie, they they missed out on the opportunity to uh, say really terrible things to the car. (laughs) uh, As if it was a woman, and then we would all laugh because it's funny when guys are mean to women. I think it's interesting, though, that, like, just as an overall thing on this list, um, we do see that attitude because obviously some of these movies are older and you know they're from a certain perspective but i think what sets these movies apart from a lot of other ones and what makes them better is that you don't see it them it's like that's not always like the movie is saying it's all it's Mm. cool you know what i mean like it's like alfie like the movie clearly is like yeah but you should really like him well and and every movie that is on this list i think has a certain element of timelessness to it yeah Um, maybe Anything from about 1993 on accepted just because it was relatively recent to when this list was made. Just the opening scene of Black Narcissus has been the only woke scene for me. <laughs> the opening scene and the scene following that. Yeah, absolutely. With uh, Edmund Knight or... Edmund Knight, yeah. Edmund Knight, yeah. Playing uh, a race that he is not. <laughs> yeah. He was very talented, I suppose, at that. He did a very cartoonish portrayal. But you guys know that. You listened to the episode, and if you didn't, it's in the archives, so go check it out. We Black, talk all about it. Black Narcissus. Yeah, Martin Scorsese loves that movie, so he maybe does. you would too. He loves all Powell and Pressburger. But uh, we're not talking about Black Narcissus. We already did. We did a whole episode. What are we, we doing? We're, we're talking about the movie we were just talking about. Right. And we're do- this, is it. this is the end of the comments. We are now at uh, your favorite part of this segment. We compare this movie to yeah. the AFI list, the American Ooh. Film Institute Top 100 list. Oh, so- I hope it's Cannonball Run. <laughs> Sorry. Damn it. <laughs> Genevieve is number 86 on the BFI Top 100. Number 86 on the AFI Top 100 is the Oliver Stone classic Platoon. Ooh. You thought I was going to say Alexander. I thought you might have said Natural Born Killers. <laughs> or uh, or uh, Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> or fucking Savages. You ever see Savages? Is that him? Yeah, I think I that's that was the Ridley one. Scott. No, it's like, it's about a... Uh, a Three people in a weird three-way relationship, and they like fight the federal government over a weed farm. I'm pretty sure I've had that movie on Blu-ray for like three years, and I've never watched it. It's a weird fucking movie. I saw it in the theater. I think John Travolta's in it. He's good, but platoon, Anyways, platoon, yeah, definitely platoon, platoon. platoon. Genevieve was fun, but I mean, platoon. Genevieve is is fun and it's interesting, but ultimately, as far as movies we've watched so far, it's pretty forgettable. I would say in comparison yeah. to something like Platoon, which love it or hate it, <laughs> it's iconic. Yeah, I mean, Genevieve is fun, but like like you said, it's kind of for, um, forgettable in that way, especially compared to like a movie like that. But also just for kind of forgettable. It's, it's even kind of like lower end of similar movies to yeah. that movie, yeah, honestly. I mean, we, I mean, obviously, we spoke of it's a mad, 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 mad world. Yeah, you got, them, it. You got it. And, uh, and of course, I kept talking about Cannibal Run because that's a great movie and Smoking the Bandit, which I don't think we talked about. but And I don't know that it directly relates, but it's a movie that has a car in it and... That's enough for me. Okay. So yeah. Drive was influenced by yes, uh, Genevieve? absolutely. Drive it can trace its lineage directly back to John Ev- Oh, can you imagine if we remade John Ev- but made it like Drive? Like where like the two guys were super serious about it and there was a lot of synth music? Wait, can we do a gender flip where the two girls are super serious and yeah. the guys are like... And the guys are like, oh, well, we just have to let girls be girls. That would be great. I'd yeah, love to see that all right. movie. All right. So there, there, there you go, folks. That does it. That does it for Genevieve. We've, we've closed the book on that. Um, and now, Jason, this week we are going to talk about uh, another movie altogether. And Another movie. To do this, it's really a matter of life and death. 
Jason, we're talking about number 20 on the BFI Ooh. Top 100. And the third time we've covered a movie directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Actually, to be fair, we should say written, produced, and directed. Um, an Archer's classic. An Ar- yeah, yeah. The Archer's, baby. Mm-hmm. And it is a film called A Matter of Life and Death. A movie where, which I will say right at the top, I feel like I've seen this redone quite a few times. Or at least something of a similar ilk to this. Uh, also, this movie was known as Stairway to Heaven, I believe, in North America. Yes, and we'll get into why in a minute here. Um, but this movie, uh, we have uh, we have an all-star cast and some, some repeat offenders from uh, previous Powell and Pressburger mm-hmm. films. Uh, we have David Niven, a 35-year-old, 50-year-old-looking David Niven. Playing a 27-year-old man. <laughs> yes. As uh, squadron leader Peter Peter Carter. Mm-hmm. We have Kim Hunter. We have an American in this film. Kim, Kim Hunter plays June, his eventual love interest. I swore up and down when this movie started that that was a British lady trying to do an American accent. I thought so too, and I think it's that like... It's it's the American actress that's picked up a little bit of British in her voice from yeah. being in Britain for so long. Yeah, I wonder if that was a choice because there's an interesting... Mm. If that was a choice, I'm, I'm, I respect it even more. Yeah, and if it wasn't, cool. Yeah, if it wasn't cool, that's just her voice. Roger Livesey plays Dr. Frank Reeves. Uh, we'll see him actually pop up in uh, Colonel Blimp later on when we M- eventually Mr. do that Mr. Teeth, one. I call him. He's some very prominent teeth. Uh, Kathleen Byron, who you may remember from Black Narcissus as the uh, evil nun. Oh, that's why she looks so familiar. Yeah, she uh, she is credited as an angel. She's the uh, she's the uniformed angel. Yes. Um, Richard Attenborough has a very quick cameo as an English pilot. It's heaven and it. That's his only bit. <laughs> um, and Marius Goring, who you may remember from The Red Shoes as the um, the, the, uh, the man that writes the play. I, I remember it now. Yeah, he is Conductor 71 in mm-hmm. this movie. Robert Coote is Flying Officer Bob, Bob Trubshaw. With, a wonder, with another wonderful mustache, for sure. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, Raymond Massey as Abraham Farlin. Who's cool. not a real person. Let's get this right out of the way right now. They cast this Abraham Farlin as the first man killed during the Revolutionary War in the United States, but that is not true. Based on what Google told me yesterday when I Googled this, the first man killed was a, a black fella named Crispus Attacus, who was one of the people killed in the Boston Massacre. I'm sure, sorry, did you say his last name was Attacus? Attacus, yeah, Crispus Attacus. <laughs> I mean, Maybe they just wanted to use a different name. <laughs> no, that was uh, that was a, it was a name that uh, black people often had back then. Roman. Oh no, I'm saying names. maybe they wanted to use a different name in the movie. In this, maybe. Movie. Yeah. Well, they didn't want to hire a black actor. I mean, there's lots of black actors in this movie. Yeah, yeah, and they're all segregated. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I mean, everybody's segregated in that scene. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about it. So again, Powell and Pressburger, uh, Jason. Again, I noticed you brought in uh, the, the soundtrack, the official soundtrack yes. for this film. Um, but and for some reason, it, it, there's, a, there's a little plot summary uh, paragraph there. Um, if you wouldn't, if you'd care to read that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So uh, uh, a man is mistakenly given some extra time on Earth. Uh, Sergeant Peter Carter was scheduled to die, mm. but then he didn't, and we don't. We never figure out how. Uh, but he has to fight for his life, literally. After he falls in love with a young lady named June, an American, uh, he now has a reason to stay alive, and apparently, this is the mechanism that allows him to appeal his mistaken not death in in uh, the afterlife. And so he does that, and he uh, gets a defense attorney and appeals it, and things may or may not work out in the end. 
Wow, that's that's right there on the soundtrack. Right there on the soundtrack. They were pretty wordy back then. And now enjoy 13 original songs <laughs> from A Matter of Life and Death. Ping, ping. Ping, ping. Let's talk about it right now because you mentioned it at the beginning and I don't want to lose sight of that point that you made. This is, uh, It comes out in 1946, yes. so the year after the war ends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called A Matter of Life and Death, but when it comes to the United States, it's called... Stairway to Heaven. And the reason for that is because at the time, this is a year after the war, um, the thinking in America is don't put death in the title. Mm. So immediately they're like, get rid of that completely, Stairway to Heaven. And I mean, it has a very small run in America. There's a whole thing where Martin Scorsese talks about these Powell and Pressburger movies because he loved them. He Mm. and like a bunch of other directors kind of rediscovered them in the 70s. So him... George Lucas, Spielberg, yeah. Coppola, they all just kind of like watch them and like, who are these guys? And and this is one of the big ones that uh, that kind of brought them all together. Mm. And so, yeah, it's barely even seen in America and it's under a different title. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into it. Yeah. Let's dive in. Yeah. Let's dive in. Where, where do you want to start here? Well, so, yeah, we've established he's supposed to die. He uh, he has a conversation with June over the radio at the beginning of the movie where they kind of have a moment, and uh, an emotional moment, because Peter is about to die, and he jumps out of the plane without a parachute. Mm-hmm. And I don't ever see a parachute. But somehow, in the fog of that night, he gets to shore and uh, thinks he's dead. And we have kind of a funny scene where he's, like, on the beach... And it's kind of a bleak, like, looking, like, empty beach. And so he just, it, it's like immediately he assumes, well, I guess I'm dead. And so he takes off all his equipment and his, and his I guess he has one boot on. So he takes off his boots and walks barefoot across the beach. <laughs> and sees just some naked kid hanging out playing a fucking whistle on a beach. So I can understand why you might think it was the afterlife. That's a weird scene to come upon. Just right. a naked kid playing a fucking flute in the midst of a bunch of goats. And he's like, where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to report to? <laughs> And the kid's like, yeah, probably the aerodrome. What? And then the plane flies overhead. And that's such a great scene of reality coming back to him, of just this plane fucking streaking overhead. Well, and let's talk about, like, reality in this movie. Because, I mean, we're constantly going back and forth. It's never called heaven, except for one quick line from Richard Attenborough, who is an English pilot who passes on and says, what does he say again? He says, it's like heaven. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the closest thing we get to it. It's always, otherwise, it's always referred to as the other world. The other world. Yeah. Um, and it, it, so at first glance, this appears to be like a fantasy movie. Hmm. Um, but there are a lot of suggestions that it could be viewed as someone who gets a traumatic brain injury. Yes. And this is just what he's devised in his head. Yeah, and it's it's never ever clearly stated in the movie one way or the other. However. There is, a, there is one small part where it kind of like leans maybe into it being a delusion. Yep. And that is at the very end of the movie when the doctor who is operating on uh, on uh, Peter takes off his uh, his mask and we see that he is the face of the guy who was the judge in the afterlife. Yes. So the, strange coincidence perhaps. The other, the other clue that I think maybe ties into this being a delusion, this whole idea of the other world and, you know... Um, them messing up and not collecting him after his death and him miraculously surviving, et cetera, et cetera, is that at some point in the movie, he's in, he, he's, he's with a doctor who's basically keeping an eye on him that thinks he has a traumatic brain injury. And the doctor has a book of uh, the chess games I've played or something like that. Chess games. Underrest yeah. chess games. And at one point, the, I mean, we're getting, I'm introducing a lot of things that yeah. seem crazy, but we'll get into it a bit in a minute. But Conductor Seventy One is the guy who's trying to get him back t- he, to the other world. He's basically the the wrangling angel. He yeah. he was the guy that was supposed to go grim reap uh, Peter, 
he was supposed to bring him to bring him to the afterlife or to the other world, and he missed him because of the super duper pea super of a fog that uh, Britain is famous for. Yes, so he he goes down to uh, to speak to Peter, and at one point he takes the chess book and leaves. Yes, um, and then you you know you think, oh okay, maybe that's the first thing to indicate that this isn't in his head. But then at the very end of the film. Um, he, I mean, in the other world, he yeah. supposedly gives it back because he, he like he like, throws it back to Earth. He's yeah. just like, here, you forgot your book, and he throws it, and then it kind of smash cuts to a bag, and she opens up the bag and pulls the book out, and she's like, oh, here's your book. Yeah, but it's it's kind of like already with Peter, so it yeah, kind of looks with Peter, like it's probably already in the bag. Like, yeah, yeah, it's almost like he like he put it in there himself to help convince himself that this all whole thing was real. Yeah, and I mean, you could argue too. Um, on the other side of it, you can argue, well, there are scenes in the other world that don't even have Peter in them. And then the argument against that is, well, that could just be him filling in the blanks yeah. in his consciousness. So I think it's really interesting that this movie can be interpreted two completely different ways. You can watch it as a like uh, weird, like yeah. uh, surreal fantasy, or you can watch it as a guy who gets an almost you know, life-threatening injury. And it, it raises so many great questions depending on how you interpret it. If you interpret it, you know, you can interpret it one way, that this is the other world. This is, like, there is an afterlife of some sort, and this is what it is. Uh, and that raises some interesting questions about the nature of the afterlife. However, the other way you can interpret it is that because it's a delusion, this is all a construction of Peter's mind. So this world is all based on his own thoughts, feelings, biases, etc. And that itself raises some interesting questions about Peter as a person. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and I, I mean, I love the details of the other world, uh, that, mm. the, the creation of that world. Because, I mean, we got to say, again, a th- throw line throughout this whole movie is that Powell and Pressburger are known for their amazing cinematography yes. because of Jack Cardiff, who and worked with them on... Set design, wonderful set design. Yeah, and that's Alfred, uh, Alfred Young, I believe is his name. But those two, like him and Jack Cardiff, like they create this amazing world. Mm. And the other world is like a set. Like I, there's there's one shot where they're looking down. They yeah. have all these like little circles on the floor where they can look down at Earth. Yeah, and you see it from the from the from the bottom looking up. Yes. and I know that the people looking over the top are not actually people. They're like composite they're, in, or they're like yeah, little like drawings. Or yeah, whatever. but it looks it looks great. It gives it this real sense of scale. Yeah, right. It just it and you you just got to remind yourself this is not like a huge budget movie. No. Um, I mean, there are some amazing models in this movie too. Like, I mean, we talk about like some of the some of the crazy shots, some of the crazy production bits is the stairway to heaven. Yes. The actual stairway, it's like they're sitting and this is this is 19 It's more like an escalator to heaven. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it can be both, right? Yeah. But it's 1946. This is not uh, this is not there's no CGI. There's no computer yeah. effects here. It's a giant stairwell yeah. that they are sitting on that is constantly moving up, seemingly just on a loop to yeah. nowhere. It's like the Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. Once you get to the top, you just fall just off. Fall off. Um, yeah, and, and this is all brought together uh, by as you say, the cinematography, the set design but also the music uh, especially in the other world it has this real sparse piano plinky creepy kind of just unsettling type of music that is really really good and really sets the scene yeah i'm actually glad you mentioned the music because um it is this weird combination that i don't think i've ever quite heard before mm. it's it, it, I mean, it almost kind of reminds me. It gave me the same kind of feeling as like the Wicker Man, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Of like, of like, oh, it's kind of charming, and at the same time, like, oh, it's kind of eerie and tense. Like, there's something going on. It's and... otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, 
I mean, the big thing here, Jason, is that we're Wizard of Ozing this thing. Yeah. We're black yeah. and white yep. and in color. But the difference is in this movie, the black and white is for the other world. Yes. And the color scenes, the Technicolor scenes, are when we're on Earth, which yes. I think is a really interesting choice. Yes, and we get some really cool transitions with that. Uh, and it was fascinating because I, I was reading a little bit about the technical details of this movie. And they used tr- uh, three-strip tele- Technicolor process to do it. But for the black and white scenes, they basically just didn't add the color in. And so you get kind of this interesting look to it that is afforded by the being like this monochrome technicolor process that you wouldn't get otherwise. And then that allows them to fade in. They have that scene where we see the uh, 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 Conductor 71 has like a flower in his hand and then he fades in and it fades from black and white to color and... He says something about, like, we don't have much Technicolor up there. Yeah, he even makes a reference to that. This this movie makes a lot of references to, it to like, film conventions. There's even a a scene later on. um, We'll talk about the Doctor, uh, but he has, like, a camera obscuro. Yes. Meaning, like, he, if anybody doesn't know what a camera obscuro is, you could actually make one of your own. Uh, I believe it's a camera obscura. Obscura, sorry. Um, but you can make obscuro sounds like something. It might be singular. Maybe camera obscuro is the plural, and obscuro would be the singular. I think maybe camera obscuro is something like David Lynch would make. That's true. That's, um, that's not a yeah. But you can actually make your own. You could like I I, w- I was watching a video online. I actually really want to make one. Um, you just take this. You you have a window. You take a giant piece of bristle board. You put it over the window. You the best thing to use is like a little flashlight lens. Yeah. Um, and you cut a hole in the middle. You put the lens in. You let the light come in. You turn off all the lights. Put a big white sheet up, and it will actually reflect what is outside in upside down, like upside down. Yeah. But it just basically mimics a camera, and it's really cool. Yeah, it's one. Of the, and in fact, that was the basis of the first cameras, the the daguerreotypes, I believe, that they would use that process to um, place a, an image upon a photosensitive surface. Yeah. yeah. And, and when I see this in the movie, I see this in the movie. I'm like. How are they doing this effect? And then when I realized what it was, yeah, I was, was like, real. oh, that's amazing. But he's but he's using a weird type of uh, oh, a he's got like a complicated one where it's like built into a building and he can like look around like a three hundred and sixty degree view of the village around him and spy yeah. on everybody like a fucking creep. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's a creep, but he's you, looking at people's windows with that thing. You, you could use if you were a creep, it'd be a thing that uh, I wouldn't want you to have. Although, also, it's it's hard to do it too subtly since he's like in this like obelisk in the middle of town mm-hmm. <laughs> and. You you could probably see the, the the top of it moving around when he was using it. <laughs> True. Yeah, and I think everyone knows that he has it. So I think it's I think it's an understanding he has. Keep your shirt on when old Doc's out in the fucking camera obscura. And he is showing it to two very adorable dogs. Yes. Yes. Oh, the doggies. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So let let's just play the. I just want to play the first scene. Yes. And um, by the first scene, I don't mean the Disney documentary opening, um, <laughs> which is talking about the universe. Which again, it, this movie just subverts your expectations at every turn. And I think that even right there is like, oh, that's how this movie is opening. Yeah. Like, it's almost like um, I. And I know this is crazy, but I just recently, for the very first time, saw It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. No. It's this is very much a movie that's in that vein that and and the opening is similar too because it's like the planet talking and it comes out the same year jason yeah so no one's copying off each other no which isn't that crazy and like these two movies and i know they're not identical but there's so many similarities it's kind of a you you could look at it as like a difference between american and british cultures like the the american movie is about a guy who is is kind of gets to see what life would have been like if he'd never existed but then kind of gets a second chance to to make a go of it but the british movie is about this guy trying to defend himself from being murdered (laughs) or from having to die you know he's trying to hold on you know and, and and fight his way back 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just think it's a crazy, weird coincidence. The same year, very similar, especially the opening. But, um, but, but I guess if there's any time you would be considering your place in morality, it would be after the largest fucking war the world had ever seen and, and mortality in general and the nature of it. That's true. Yeah. Um, so let's listen to the opening scene. This is a uh, we go we get right into it. We go right to David Niven in the plane going down and he's talking to the what would you call her? She, uh, I assume she's like a, uh, kind of basically an air traffic controller, it seems okay. like, that she's on the radio keeping track of planes. With June, played by yeah. Kim Hunter. Um, and this is the opening scene. What's your name? June. Yes, June, I'm bailing out. I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. Uh, hello, hello, Peter, do not understand. Hello, hello, Peter, can you hear me? Hello, June. Don't be afraid. It's quite simple. We've had it, and I'd rather jump than fry. After the first thousand feet, what's the difference? I shan't know anything anyway. I say, I hope I haven't frightened you. No, I'm not frightened. Good girl. You sparks, you said he was dead. Hasn't he got a shoot? Cut the ribbons, cannon shell. June, are you pretty? Not bad. Can you hear me as well as I hear you? Yes. You've got a good voice. You've got guts, too. It's funny, I've known dozens of girls. I've been in love with some of them, but an American girl whom I've never seen and who I never shall see will hear my last words. That's funny. It's rather sweet. June, if you're around when they pick me up, turn your head away. Perhaps we can do something, Peter. Let me report it. No, no one can help. Only you. Let me do this in my own way. I want to be alone with you, June. Where were you born? Boston. Mass? Yes. That's a place to be born. History was made there. Are you in love with anybody? No, no, don't answer that. I could love a man like you, Peter. I love you, June. Your life and I'm leaving you. Where do you live? On the station? No, in a big country house about five miles from here. Lee Woodhouse. Old house? Yes, very old. Good, I'll be a ghost and come and see you. You're not frightened of ghosts, are you? It'll be awful if you were. <laughs> I'm not frightened. What time will you be home? Well, I'm on duty till six. I have breakfast in the mess and then I have to cycle half an hour. I often go along the sands. This is such nonsense. No, it's not. It's the best sense I ever heard. I was lucky to get you, June. Can't be helped about the parachute. I'll have my wings suit anyway. Big white ones. I hope they haven't got all modern. I'd hate to have a prop instead of wings. What do you think the next world's like? I got my own ideas. Peter. I think it starts where this one leaves off. Or where this one could leave off if we'd listen to Plato and Aristotle and Jesus. With all our little earthly problems solved, but with greater ones worth the solving. I'll know soon enough anyway. I'm signing off now, June. Goodbye. Goodbye, June. Hello, G for George. Hello, G George. Hello, G George. I love that scene. Mm. I love that whole scene. That's just yeah. a snippet of it, but that's great. And then it leads right and and, and this movie and I love now we talked about the red shoes and I love the red shoes. Um I did have I do find the romance in the red shoes not quite that convincing. Mm. I find this romance a lot more convincing because oh, yeah. they bond in this time of ex- like trauma. Yes, like this, this, this to fall in love this quick with someone normally in a movie is like okay, come on. Yeah. But like this is this is I believe I believe this. Yeah, well, I mean, she she also assumed that he was dying. He was literally yeah. just about to die, and this was kind of the last minute thing for him. I I really like David Nimmin's approach to this. It's very like old school, like 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 stock. Um, World War II pilot. He's charming. He's he's cool under pressure. He's about to fucking die. And meanwhile, he's chatting this girl up on the radio because he knows it's the last thing he's ever gonna do. Yeah. And it's and it's wonderful watching. By the way, David Niven looks a lot like Justin Timberlake to me. 
He's kind of got a small mouth and a big nose. Okay, I'm looking at a picture right now. I can yeah, kind of see it. It's yeah. a little bit there. Um, so you're saying is you'd like Justin Timberlake, the, to, Justin be in the Timberlake to get that little mustache? Yes. Oh, if he could pull that off. Mm. Yeah. Mwah. Okay. Um, Who would be his Kim Hunter? Uh, like Zo- Zoe Deschanel? I think she's got the look. Doesn't she have a sister? That sounds like a creepy thing. No, normally. no, no. Do, well, I mean, Dude. it is kind of because I'm gonna like, yeah, she, no, cast her sister. Does she have a sister? <laughs> Haley Duff, get us Haley Duff. Uh, Emily Deschanel, I think. There we go. Yeah. Well, why not Zoe? Let's get Haley Duff. All I right. want to give sisters jobs. Ashley Simpson, let's get her in here. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm good. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I I like how that scene is filmed. Just the combination of the sound of the plane engine going, and in the background you can see the flickering of the of the plane's engine on fire. It's all in the incredible details. And the wind in the cockpit because it's you know it's ripped open to the sky. I don't know how the plane's flying. He's not flying the plane. Nobody's flying the fucking plane. <laughs> you can I mean you could tell watching this movie that maybe it wasn't like. The I'm not saying it's bad, but like maybe it wasn't like the best experience working with these directors because mm. I feel like they're very particular. Yeah. Because you can see it in the details, like yes. you said, you even see like the sparks in the background, yep. the the sounds that are coming in. Like it's for not for one second, Jason, did I think watching this scene? Oh, this looks phony. Yeah. No. It, it, everything they did looks great, and in and because they use like all good filmmakers that that have tools available to them. They use the tools in the right ways. Yeah. Like we don't see a full shot of a, of a miniature plane in the air. We see basically a dark silhouette of this plane flying through the sky, lit up only by a little bit of like engine on fire. Honestly, they do what, uh, I mean, I'm just going to say a lot of directors should do nowadays is not work beyond your means. That's right. Not don't, if you, if you have a script that has a full on dog fight and you know, you can't make it look not like shit. Don't do it. Don't do it. Figure out a better way to do it. It's the same thing. Like, I've talked about it before, but in Jurassic Park, that's the go-to example of, of Steven Spielberg understanding how to use CG in a very limited amount, because I think there's only about 12 seconds of, of actual CG in that movie, but every single bit of it is used effectively, and, and it is used in its strongest way. That's why it's raining, that's why it's dark, and the dinosaurs can be shiny. Like It was taking advantage of the, of the technology that was available at the time without pushing it beyond its limits. And it's also not like that... That horrible type of CGI that only looks good if it's dark. It's not like Godzilla 1998, or, where the whole or, movie is dark and Or rainy. the type of CG where you get like the first Spider-Man movie, where they were really going hard, advancing the tech and, and their abilities, but they just didn't have the, the technology to do the stuff they wanted to do and make it look good in a way that would hold up. I've always said that, I've always said that about the first Spider-Man movie, because let's just talk about that for a yeah. second. Um Sure. I've always said about that movie, thank God the directing and the writing and the acting yeah. is good because, yeah, the special effects are a bit dodgy. A bit dodgy for sure, but, but yeah, you got Sam Raimi involved. I think they got better in the second one, though. Oh, no, they did, absolutely. Yeah. The second one, but but again, Sam Raimi, too, a director that understands. Sam Raimi, too? <laughs> Sam Raimi as well, Shit. especially in that second movie, a guy that, that does practical when he, he knows that it's going to look better. And, I mean, in, in that second Spider-Man movie, we see that initial scene with Doc Ock's arms. That's the best scene in the That's movie. That's one of the best scenes in the movie, and it is all practical. And mm-hmm. it looks great because it's, it's practical. Dead. It doesn't have that weird, like, just unearthly gravity that CG can often provide. Like, it looks real. For anybody saying that... For anybody out there that's saying, like, oh, we need CG now, we need CGI mm. to make stuff look good, this is an Exhibit A yeah. that you don't. I, I understand, I understand, like, I'm not anti-CGI. No, no. I understand that for stuff like Lord of the Rings, it's mostly CGI, and it looks great. And it's it necessary looks, for the story they're trying to tell. And, and movies like that look amazing. But I'm saying, like, you don't you don't just need it to, ha- to need it. No. Like, why couldn't Harrison Ford just act with a real dog? Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Why, <laughs> why couldn't why couldn't Brandon Routh do not Brandon Routh? Why couldn't have Henry Cavill just have shaved his mustache off and then grown it back? Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's the production's fault. But yeah, um, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the background of, the, of this movie too, um, as we're still getting into the movie, but. Uh, this movie was actually originally suggested as a propaganda movie. Huh. Because this is during a time where, like, American and British relations weren't, like, amazing. After and, the war? Yeah, they were kind of like, uh, Americans weren't having, like, this British uh, moral superiority and British weren't having the American, like, being Americans. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's this, it's a t- the typical friction that comes with victorious allies, I imagine. Yeah, and I mean, and, and this is, this was an attempt to bring some kind of peace between them. Um, Like I have written here, there was a degree of public hostility towards American servicemen stationed in the UK prior to the D-Day invasion of Europe. Mm. Uh, They were viewed by some as latecomers to the war, I mean, which they were, were. um, and as, quote, um, this this is not my words, overpaid, oversexed, and overhear. Yeah, by the public, uh, that by a public that had suffered three years of bombing and rationing, um, and probably super racist, even by racist Britain standards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Britain's no innocent. To, no, no, certainly innocence not. To that, but but, but their, yes. their racism wasn't quite to the level of American racism. <laughs> um, so the premise of this movie is basically they did it as kind of reversal: is that the British pilot gets the pretty American woman rather than the other way around? Because we have June played by an American actress, Kim yeah. Hunter, who I think does a wonderful job in this movie, as well as David Niven. That is, I didn't think of that, but that is an interesting turn on the idea. Yeah, uh, the British woman falling for the dashing American pilot. The, the, well, that's mostly what happens, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and the and the only, and I mean, yes, we talked about how this guy uh, Abraham Farnley, uh, Abraham Farlan, was not the actual first victim in the what was it the the, the American Revolution, right? Um, but basically, the only bit of like that they show, I guess, to be like bigotry or any kind of racism. I don't say racism, but you know, like bigotry. Yeah. Um, is is voiced by this guy, this this Raymond Raymond Abraham Farland, yeah. um, played by Raymond Massey, uh, who, by the way, was a Canadian national at the time. Yeah. Hey, good job, Ray. <laughs> um, yeah, and and. And I mean, he's kind of a villain in a way, yes. and his his vo- he's voicing the um, the opposition to, to the British. I, okay, let's let's just take. Okay, why the fuck? Okay, this is the other thing. If if this is the actual afterlife, okay, why the fuck does nationalism matter so much in a place where nations mean nothing? Like, what? Why? Why is the division of I these mean, two white people's nations so important in the afterlife? But if it's a manifestation of um, David's mind, or David. Peter, Peter, uh, Peter's mind. Then okay, that makes sense. I yeah. get that. that I mean, is I think, him trying to form this structure for this. That existence. might just that might just play into that theory more. Yeah. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, I guess you could you could I mean you could argue he's holding the grudge. Abraham yes. Farland. I mean, he's the first uh, in the movie. He's the first American killed by you know British. Yes. So I mean, I, I get that part. Um, I this is kind of late in the movie, but I do want to play this this quick scene. Um, so th- so eventually, the last twenty minutes of this movie are a giant trial. Yeah. Um, to decide if Peter gets to stay on Earth, uh, because he's found love in this time during the mix-up when he's supposed to die, 
or if he has to come back up to the other world, heaven. Um, and I love this because this is Abraham Farland, this American character who uh, plays an example of something British. Yes. Just to rag on them. And then the British do something back. And I'm then we'll talk about yeah. what they play later. Yes. Yeah. So let's just listen to this. My grandfather left England, sir, because he didn't like it. And granddad would have liked it even less today. Listen. Well, here we are, Lord. The Voice of England in 1945. And here, let me say, the weather is much more like cricket weather now. It stopped raining. Play has been resumed. And the crowd of, I should say, about 50,000 people have discarded their Max umbrellas and settled down to enjoy the game, which to people all over the world is perhaps more truly representative of all that's typically English than anything else. Do you admit that this is an English voice, sir? (laughs) Uh, That was Wally Hammond who played a delightful forcing shot off Miller. The Voice of America in 1945. Choo, 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 baby. Choo, 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 baby. Bye, 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 baby. Your papa's off to the seven seas. Don't I don't understand the word. Nor do I. But for England, I'm ready to call John Donne, Dryden, Pope, Wordsworth and Coleridge, Shelley and Keats, Tennyson, Bridges. And Milton and Shakespeare. I concede your point. And you've already called Peter Carter. Is he a poet? He will be if you give him time. That's my, I think that might be my favorite scene. That's a great scene, but I, I, I point out in this scene, so when they start playing the American music, they start cutting away. They cut away to the jury. They cut away to the audience. And when they cut away to the audience, we see for the very first time and the first of two times a group of black soldiers all by themselves, segregated from everybody else. And again, if this is the real afterworld, is everybody segregated by race and, and profession? Because they seem to be a bunch of black soldiers. Uh, uh, and if not, uh, is that just a construct of Peter's own mind being a racist and thinking that all the black guys are going to sit together? And and then the other thing is that, of course, the only time we see them is during this scene where <laughs> they play some pop music and they cut to all the black dudes who I half expected to be just like, yeah, man, yeah, just like snapping their fingers and going along. To it. But then uh, th- later we when they replace the jury... Uh, with Americans, it's it's this diverse set of Americans, and one of the Americans that is on there is a, is a black soldier, and then we cut to the the black guys, I believe, applauding. Yeah. <laughs> that fact. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I get but that's how, only two times we see them. Yeah, and I mean, I get how it comes across, like it, it, just watching it like this. But yeah, I, I I don't think the intention is there. No, and I'm I, sure the intent at the time was to show a diverse section yeah, of people in this audience. I, I think so because I think because I mean every other group is one specific type of yeah, people. Yeah, we, we see a bunch of soldiers, and then we see a bunch of, like, women's auxiliary soldiers, which, wow, a lot of them died in the war. And um, we see, like, a group of Puritans all hanging out together in their, like, hats and collars and shit. Um, 
Another, I will say, if this is my favorite moment, then my second favorite moment is when uh, near the beginning of the film where you see everyone kind of coming into the other world mm. and all these soldiers come in. They're very excited and they look over and they see something. They're all happy and you're like, oh, do they see Bob, like Bob that's passed away? Are they all going to gather up and tell old war stories? No, it's a Coca-Cola machine. Yep. And they all just all very happy, very happy to, to get their Coca-Cola. Yeah, like when they walk in, they're like, wait, is this the soldier section? And it seems to be. They're like, we want to be in the, uh, we want to, us to stay in the soldiers' quarters. And they're like, well, everyone just has the same kind of area here. Yeah, everybody's equal here. Yeah. And with one guy's like, ah, here we go, brother. <laughs> um, I, I do want to actually mention one thing, too, because you mentioned that there's Technicolor when they're on Earth yeah. and black and white when we're up in this other world. But did you know that they actually filmed all of it in Technicolor? Yeah, and they pulled the color from the uh, from the black and white parts, and it gives it kind of an interesting yeah, black and white look to it. It's got like a pearly hue. Yes, as, 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 as it's described. Yeah. Um, and actually, th- this, this idea... Um, is what it, so for a long time people thought that all Powell and Pressburger movies were in black and white because mm. when they were brought over to the states they were decolor like the color was taken out to make it cheaper I guess mm. and Martin Scorsese said he was watching it and he just he would just be like watching it like the black and white doesn't look right like he he mentioned Black Narcissus yeah. um, because. The, the, all these outfits, you can tell they're supposed to be really colorful and there's like different shades and stuff. And I mean, yes, blackface. Yeah. Um, and he's watching it and he's like, I don't think this was intended to be in black and white because they're really striving to get all these colors through. So, I mean, it has that look of like <coughs> a Powell and Pressburger movie that the Technicolor was taken out of. Yeah. We uh, should also mention too, so in the afterlife, his, he has to at some point choose an advocate. And you can choose any advocate from all of time. Oh, yes. You mentioned you wanted to say something about this one. Uh, uh, this is while they're on the stairway to heaven, by the way. Oh, when they're on the stairway to heaven. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's talking he, with... Um, Conductor uh, 71. Conductor 71, who at some point we realized this is... He's basically talking to him to keep him on the stairway in the hopes that he'll just kind of accidentally end up in the other world. Oh, yeah. He traps him. He, he tries, tries to trap to, him. Yeah, he tries to trick him. Um, and, and by the way... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's trying to get him to pick legal counsel. Yeah. Um, Actually, do you want to? If we're going to talk about this, do should we just listen to, listen yeah, to the play, scene play first? Yeah, play a little bit of that scene. Okay. What about him, Lincoln? Now it's hardly fair to drag him in. I don't believe he'd be prejudiced. Plato. How would you like to be defended by Plato? Nobody knew more about reasoning than Plato. He was eighty-one when he died. He might be too old to think love important. You think so? Anyhow, Plato had very elementary ideas about love. Besides, didn't he quote Sophocles when somebody asked him if he was still able to appreciate a woman? What did the old boy say? Well, he said, uh, I'm only too glad to be rid of all that. It's like escaping from bondage to a raving madman. These Greeks, cold as their marble. Now, if he had been French, Richelieu, for example, irresistible at eighty. How about Richelieu? I never liked him much in the Three Musketeers. Solomon. Solomon. No. Mais tonnerre de Dieu, who do you want? You have only a few hours left. Look, it sounds a grand idea to have all these great men to choose from. But what do they know of our problems today? True. Very little. Besides, I think it ought to be an Englishman. Nobody famous, but somebody with his head screwed on all right. Screwed? 
Now, this Abraham um, Farlow, was he a famous man? He was the first American to be killed by a British bullet. <laughs> I don't mean that. I mean, was he a great philosopher or statesman? He was a school teacher. There, you see. Now, Plato will probably talk about perceptions and causations. Pardon? Over your head, too? Definitely. I, I, well, before you mention what you're, I know what you're going to mention, but uh, I got to say, Marius Goring in this movie yes. is hilarious. He's wonderful. I love him. I love his ridiculous French accent. Yeah. Um, it is the furthest thing possible from the red shoes. Yeah. Like, he was the straight laced man and he is the character in this one. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, okay, I just wanted to say that. Uh, he also, I, I like how he, he reminds me, and I don't know if this, I, I wonder if this directly came from this movie, but on, on the original Star Trek, the character of Chekhov, who comes in the second season, is a Russian character. And one of his running bits is that he believes that everything was invented by the Russians and is constantly talking about Russian people doing stuff. And I like how uh, Conductor 71 is, is very much obsessed with French people. And he's like, oh, this is French, it's great, you know, it's French. Um, I also just thought it was funny. This is my little thing. I thought it was funny that one of the statues we see on the wide shots on the left side is of Muhammad, the founder of the uh, Islamic uh, religion. We see the name. Yes, we see the name. We don't actually see the statue itself. So I wonder if even then... Well, one wonders if if uh, somebody actually gave a shit about Muslims not liking depictions of Muhammad, or yeah. if that's just how that worked out. Although the idea of there being a statue at all is kind of funny. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> in this post-Dutch newspaper cartoon world. Oh, jeez, two thousand five, um, baby. Yeah, that was that was uh, that was. I openly advocated to my uh, uh, student newspaper editor to print those cartoons. Oh yeah, yeah, and they didn't. Probably for the best. <laughs> I mean, yeah, better better than to gamble, I guess. Um, well, yeah, I, I just want to say, yeah, so Mary Scoring, again, amazing in that scene. This movie actually had a huge pre-production period just because of how complex this, the, the production was. Mm. I mean, we talked about the Red Shoes and how they had to choreograph entire ballets. Yes. Um, no slouch here with this movie either. Uh, we had the huge. We have this huge escalator, which you, you described yeah. it as. It's basically an escalator, but it's a stairway to heaven. Um it took three months to make and mm-hmm. cost 3,000 pounds, which is equivalent to 130,000 pounds now. Wow. Yeah. So it had 106 steps, uh, each 20 feet wide, <laughs> and was driven by a 12 HP engine. 12 horsepower engine, 12 you say. horsepower engine. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the full shot was completed by hanging miniatures. The noise of the machinery also prevented recording the soundtrack live, so all scenes with the escalator are uh, are dubbed in post-production, which I also didn't really notice. Probably so, yeah, you don't hear the engine running, the gas engine <laughs> moving the escalator up and down. Yeah. <laughs> they had to wait nine months for film stock and Technicolor cameras because they were being used by the U.S. Army to make training films. Ah, well... Uh, the decision of the fil- to film the scenes of the other world in black and white added to these complications because they needed more time. Um, and actually, it's it's credited as uh, color and dye monochrome processed in Technicolor, which is the exact wording of how they filmed the uh, black and white stuff. Even back then, they loved silly-sounding names for stuff. <laughs> Um, there's other sequences that had some challenges and we haven't really talked about it yet, but the, whenever Conductor 71 comes to Earth to speak with Peter, the whole, everything freezes. Mm. And there's a great scene later where the doctor and Kim Hunter, uh, June, are playing table tennis and they freeze. And even like the little tennis ball freezes in the middle yes, of the air. Yes, that was a cool scene. You mean ping pong ball? Ping pong ball, yeah. 
Um, so they actually were given some training by actual ping pong ball champions because they needed to make that scene very quick. The camera cuts back, like, you know, swings back and forth during that scene. Um, and I, I love that that scene was totally a function of, of the need to have something cool when they froze time. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, they're suddenly they're going to play ping pong. Okay, great. And then, yes, so, so we can have a ball frozen in the air. Um, the other scene that, 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 that was made it, made it a little difficult is where you mentioned uh, at the beginning when Carter first washes up on the beach, when Peter first washes up on the beach. Jack Cardiff, the cinematographer, literally turned the camera around and breathed on it to mm. give it a bit of fog and then immediately started shooting. Nice. That's how they did that. Old school techniques, man. The, the trial sequence at the end, the big courtroom trial, required a 350-foot long by 40-foot high backcloth. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a big space that they're in. And, and the judge, of course, intimates at one point that, yes, we'll have, we have enough room for anybody who wants to... to to watch this, implying that everybody who's ever lived or died has the ability to come see this simultaneously. Yes. Uh, and clearly not everybody made it. Yeah, no. It was, Some it people was a, definitely Facebook invite uh, maybe that shit. A lot of military were there, and mm-hmm. then all those Puritans. Right. <laughs> all those people that love trials. <laughs> um, also, the, something I... I, I um, and I don't know what... I looked this up. This is a deliberately done thing. But all the statues, by the way, that you see during that scene where they're talking about legal counsel um, were all written in the script. Like he specifically said the statues he wanted to have in that scene. And apparently all of these people that are here had epilepsy. And I think that's an interesting detail. Might Hmm. feed into the whole, you know, this being a delusion. This being some kind of, you know, fantasy world that doesn't exist. So on the topic of the council, what I wanted to say was that... So one of the characters in this movie is Frank, who's uh, uh, the doctor. He's a psychologist. Yeah, we didn't talk a lot about Frank. We didn't talk a lot about Frank yet. Mr. Teeth. He, um, he's interested in the case because he's friends with June, and June comes to him for help, saying, like, hey, this, this guy is having some trouble. He's clearly got some stuff going on in his head. We were hoping you might, you know, talk to him and see about it. So they end up meeting at, like, an officer's club. Mm-hmm. And he basically gives him his first session uh, in the middle of an officer's club, which seems pretty unprofessional to me, especially given that June is there and that it's not like a one-on-one confidential kind of session. Jason, it was 1946. It was a different time. They like to do their therapy sessions over a drink in the club. Sci- you know, psychiatry was, was whatever, dude. Yeah. Just be cool. So, so Frank is interested to figure out what's going on, but he also is of the mind that they kind of play into his fantasy, that they... Uh, help him out in coming up with a defense. And the, doesn't that feel kind of unique to a movie it, it like this? It is interesting like that. I wondered about the ethics of it. I didn't know. I mean, I, I'm, to be fair, I'm not a psychologist, so yeah. I don't know the efficacy of something like that, but it seems weird to me. Well, I think it, I mean, I mean, according to the movie anyway, I yes. think that the reason he does, I mean, he does this because I think he's of the belief that if Peter in his supposed visions loses the case yes. effectively it's him giving up the fight giving and up, dying exactly just kind of giving up his will so i think i think this is what he's doing as a distraction until they can get this surgery done because the whole movie is setting up um that he's getting this other doctor to perform this like life-saving brain surgery mm-hmm. did you know that this movie is based on a true story in a way really so it's based on a real british pilot who was going down he got on the radio said he was going down no parachute nothing like that jumped out of the plane Landed and somehow survived. Mm. Um, so obviously the rest is 
Powell and Pressburger, but yeah. this is them Powell and Pressburger taking that story and being like, well, what if he was supposed to die? Yeah. And what if, like, the rest of the movie, he's fighting against that? It was a, it was a clerical error when all was said and done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then Chris Rock took that idea and made an Academy Award-winning film called Down to Earth. Is that movie basically a remake of this? Kind of feels like it a little bit. Because I, I thought that that was a movie where, like, he came back as a white guy dies and comes back as a black guy. Is that a different Are you movie? thinking of Soul Man? Is that Soul Man? <laughs> not, not uh, no, I think Soul Man. I think he, he paints himself up black so that he can experience life. No, unfortunately, in the film, uh, he takes tanning pills. Oh, no. It's, so yeah. it's, not even, it's not even a, a, a direct attempt to understand people. It's no. a mistake. He takes experimental tanning p- pills. Wow. <sighs> Damn. C. Thomas Howell. And then, and then C. Thomas Howell is the one guy in fucking Gods and Generals. He's the union officer that uses the term darky. Maybe because he was like, nobody's going to expect Ponyboy to be racist. That's right. Nobody would expect that. <laughs> um, you'd think his agent would be like, you just did the Soul Man thing. You really want to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue, too, that this is a comedy. Yeah, it is pretty funny. I, I would say, like, more, I mean, obviously more than Black Narcissist. Yeah, oh, Jesus, <laughs> um, yes. But, I mean, there are, funny, there are funny moments. Yes. There are funny parts in The Red Shoes, although that's mostly a tragedy. Mm. But this is, like, almost a full-on comedy. Well, it's kind of absurd, the idea of, like, arguing a court case in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> the other world, I think you mean. Oh, sorry, the other world. Yeah, yeah. When I'm with you, I'll take you away to another world. Keep going. That's all I know. To another world. To another world. Do, 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 do. That was a soap opera my mom used to watch in the 90s. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It got replaced by Passions, though. Oh, with all the witches and shit? Witches and Timmy and shit, yeah. Mm. I was, I was more of a General Hospital. Ah, gal. well, yeah, my, my grandmother loved General Hospital. Yeah, my mom worked in a hospital, so I don't think she had much interest in watching a show about a hospital. So, matter of life and death. Yes, great movie. <laughs> um, what, what else? We talk? I mean, let's talk about the doctor. You mentioned that scene where he's given the uh, he's doing the analysis. Let's listen to that scene yes. uh, where he's. He's basically diagnosing and, and feeding into Peter's kind of visions. Yes. I thought I was asked to tea. It isn't time yet. Past my time. One last question. It may sound silly, but um, have you imagined recently that you've smelt something that couldn't possibly be there? What an extraordinary thing. What is? How did you know? It was a long shot. You have. Yes, but if it was so silly, I would never have told you. It's important. It might explain everything abnormal that you've seen and heard. Well, that would be a relief, but you still can't explain how I can jump without a parachute and be alive. No, it couldn't do that, but there might be a possible explanation even of that. Now, this heavenly messenger, you saw him quite clearly. I told you, as clear as I see you. And this smell, you imagined, was it at the same time? Yes, it was particularly strong. Was it a pleasant smell? Yes. Could you place it? (laughs) Fried onions. And this uh, messenger, he hasn't turned up again. No, but he will. When? He picks his own time and stops it. Oh, Peter's lodged an appeal. Against what? Against his collar. That's the spirit. Don't give in. I won't. I'm lucky that June knew you, Doctor. Thank you for coming. June has lucky friends. I've got bad news for you. Then why the grin? You're going with me. Where to? To my house, for two reasons. First, I want to meet this chap next time he drops in. Second, I like a nice girl around the house, and she only comes to see me to borrow a book. 
This is a slow reader. What about my CO? I fixed it with him. Besides, until we get this settled, I'm your CO. And at my house, you'll get your tea at half past four. Tea break! I also love the tea break at the end. Yeah, the, 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 the weird American soldiers in this movie, because there's a scene at one point where they're rehearsing a play, and, and it seems that a, an Anglican priest is leading them in the play, and he gives the guy a line reading, and he's like hitting the soldier or whatever, kind of slapping him. And then the other guy, he's like, can I do the business? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. And so he starts doing the scene, and he starts slapping the other soldier, and finally the other soldier has had enough, and he slaps him back. <laughs> I was wondering what that scene... I was confused at that part. I actually didn't know what was going on, so I'm yeah, glad no, they, you explained it. Yeah, it was a play. It was a play rehearsal. It was very funny. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, but the, anyways, the doctor, yes, the doctor, yes. so he, he's very interested in this case, he's, he's playing into this fantasy, but then at some point in the movie, he goes out in the night, earlier in the movie, we see him on his motorcycle, and he almost crashes off the road. Very Lawrence of Arabia, the Very way Lawrence shot. of Arabia, yeah, in kind of similar gear and stuff, and as soon as he, like, had to dodge that thing, I thought, oh shit, is he gonna die, and, but he, he avoids death, until later in the movie, when it's, like, windy and raining, and he's blasting down the road, doesn't survive that. And it's the ambulance, it, yeah, a very it, dark bit of humor. Yeah, exactly. It's he the ambulance. Hits he, the ambulance. He yeah. swerves off the road to avoid. And but Jason, would you argue that they do this to so that he can be the lawyer? Exactly. It's it's a convenient turn of fate so yeah. that he can then be um, uh, a very knowledgeable advocate for Peter uh, Peter in the uh, other world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that obviously him earlier when he's presenting his case against that American uh, yes. unfortunate American man. By the <laughs> way, uh, did you? I don't know if you noticed this, but at one point, Conductor Seventy One says how he died. He, he says that he was uh, he was beheaded. Oh yeah, because he asked the doctor. He says, "Have you seen mass surgery scars or whatever?" Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I just thought that was funny. Um, oh, uh, one thing I also wanted to point out is this is obviously this is 1946. This is before you know this is before Neil Armstrong. Yeah, this is before we end. Uh, you know, go to space or whatever, land on the moon. The vision of Earth does not look like we how we know Earth to look. You mean uh, in that open, the very opening yeah. scene? Yeah, it, it looks more like Venus. There's a lot of very strong clouds moving very fast. Now, you know more about this stuff than I do, so I'll ask you. Um, obviously, I know we didn't land on the moon yet. Yeah. Um, but do they have, like, photos of this? Like, do they have photos of the Earth before this time? I don't really think so, because the first satellite was not launched until 1957. Okay. So that would have been the earliest possible period you could have got a picture of the Earth. I don't know that Sputnik even had a camera on it. So this is this is, like... Basically, an early guess as to what the Earth kind looks of, like. Because the only way you would really know what the Earth looked like from any height is the highest a plane would have flown. And, and by the end of World War II, yeah, sure, there were planes and balloons that had gone up very high, but that only gives you so much of the Earth before you get up so high that the air is so thin that it can't rise anymore. I, I thought I that was one of the most fascinating parts of the movie for mm-hmm. me because, like, when they showed the Earth, I actually for a second I was like, that's not the Earth. But also, one has to understand that they have the function of the the tools available to them, right? So they did the best with what they had. Oh no, yeah. I love it. You know, I, what I'm I saying just... is that it, it may not have been, it may have been partially uh, a consequence of those tools, the way they went about depicting the Earth in that way, as opposed to depicting it the way that might have been considered accurate. Because we all had globes even back then, so we yeah. knew kind of the idea of what it looked like. I don't know though. Like I just, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting. Um, I just, I just love the time capsule. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's a cool, it. and it's a cool looking scene too, as it's panning through space and he's pointing at the stars. And, and again, it's a like, Disney, do- it's a Disney documentary from the fifties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, you know, let's listen, let's listen to that opening because sure. it's, it's a narrator basically t- telling you about space. Yeah. This is the universe. Big. Isn't it? Thousands of suns, myriads of stars, 
separated by immense distances and by thin floating clouds of gas. The starlight makes the gas transparent, and where there are no stars, it appears as dark, obscuring clouds, like that great black cone over there. Hello, there's a nova, a whole solar system exploded. Someone must have been messing about with the uranium atom. No, it's not our solar system, I'm glad to say. Yeah, no, I, it might as well just be like, well, these weasels sure know a good meal when they see one. Well, them Duke boys sure got themselves into some trouble. Yeah, and then you see space, and it's just a big Confederate flag. Yeah, yeah, because uh, in, in the future, the Confederates are the government in space, I guess. Yeah, in the fu- I played StarCraft. In the, in, the, in the future of one year after this movie takes yeah, place. Yeah. <laughs> I do like in that scene too. The new, the new south is space, and we don't rise again because it's already up, going up into Uranus. <laughs> hey. hey, we make butt jokes here in the south. We love them just as much as you do. We love butts. Now, don't go sticking your dick in no butt. <laughs> well, at least not the ladies that you ain't married to. <laughs> yeah, up top, my brother. Oh yeah. Terrible characters. Retire yeah. them now. We, we love you, the South, <laughs> especially Alabama. God, I love you, Alabama. God save Alabama. God save the queen. And God save the screen and goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) That's not even our intro. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I think think that's really uh, an interesting way to open a movie like this. and you know what's what's cool? I watched this twice, by the way, um, because sometimes if, if I really like the movie, I watch it twice. Spoiler alert! Um, and I really thought like the second time I watched it, I kind of got I kind of got it a bit more. Like I, at first, I watched it just as a pure fantasy movie, mm-hmm. and then when I watched it the second time, thinking like, oh, what if it's in his head? I was like, oh, this could totally be in his head. This was the Fight Club of its day. Spoiler yeah. alert! <laughs> <laughs> except that they, except that they don't give you the satisfaction. No. Of knowing. That's true. You don't get any clear, specific indicator. It, it's like if in Fight Club, um, Brad Pitt had said he was your his imaginary friend, but then at the end he found like a piece of cloth that like Brad Pitt owned, and he's like, oh shit, maybe he was real. Or, or Marlo's like, where'd that other guy go? <laughs> he, he wait, yeah, he wakes up out of a dream, and Marlo says, weren't we having a threesome? Uh, right as Edward Norton is like, it was all a dream. Or was it? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Wade's world, Wade's world, Wade's world. Yeah, so, I mean, Jason, we talked about this movie a lot. Do you have any uh, bits and bobs that you want to get into? Jason's bits and bobs. Let's check out his list and see what he hasn't said yet. As I pointed out earlier, I thought she wasn't American, but she was American. Talking so about June? My apologies to June and Kim Hunter. Yes. I, again, I felt exactly the same way, um, especially before she says she's from Boston. Because she does sound like she's affecting a bit of an accent. Yes. Still just thought that boy hanging out in the beach uh, naked was weird. But I guess back then... If was he the naked? Beach, no, he was. I, I, I was... I was Because I, I thought he was sitting there like in the swim trucks or something. But as yeah. I got closer to him, it was clear. No, he was just naked on the beach. Oh, so he was straight kissing it. Yeah, he was kissing it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, maybe he needed a tan. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Fair um, enough. It's funny. They thought he'd just be a good sport about it, but... <laughs> Explain what about about dying? They thought just kind of oh, we, we figured we figured Peter, you'd be a sport. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, can I do the business? That Ooh, was funny. I do like that when he gets onto the island, Peter washes up on the island and, you know, thinks, I don't know what's going on. This could be the afterlife. He immediately takes off his boots and his socks yeah. because that's exactly what you would do. You'd be like, listen, I was just almost killed in the air. The first thing I want to do is feel the ground under my feet. Yeah, well, and he was already missing one of his boots, so he figured yeah. he may as well take, him, take the other one off. But that too. felt to me like him trying to ground himself. Uh, I really like in the scenes where time freezes that there's almost no sound other than their voices. Mm. There's like at one point he makes like the wind pick up and stuff and, and kind of shows his power with the weather, but like it's very, very eerie. And then if the music is used, it's very sparse. It really adds to the overall kind of tension and scene of it. Um, Kim Hunter's acting choices, I think are really good. Like there's one scene I want to call out in particular mm. where he's talking about like his trial and everything and how he has to pick legal counsel. And she looks at him like, understanding and believing and then as soon as he embraces her she kind of looks down like oh my god uh, uh, what's wrong with him like i hope he's okay he's crazy and it's a great like it's just a great bit of acting yeah uh that motorcycle in my notes i wrote Chekhov's motorcycle because we saw it and it killed a guy eventually killed a man killed a man um again i wonder do you think david lean watched that scene because that was identical, man. Not identical, it but it similar, was yeah. shot very similarly. One wonders, one wonders. But then mm. one wonders how many different ways can one shoot a motorcycle death in 1940-whatever. Is that a challenge? Yeah, I want to know. All right. Uh, the effect when uh, when Peter is like lying down, I think on the surgery table, and he closes his eyes, and we, we see like the inside of his yes. eye close, and then that transitions from color back to black and white as it like pans down into the into the courtroom like that is amazing such a cool shot that is amazing. so amazing yeah. I when that started to happen when you first saw that it was going to be an eye closing mm-hmm. I was just in shock I was like this is a real shot that they're doing right now they had to build this yeah. like this thing to put over the camera all these plates of glass I imagine that then had to be like manipulated over the camera and yeah it, it's just to really get this, impressive just to get that one shot yeah it, and it's really it's really cool because it like you're Peter at that point. Yes, and it's. I mean, and that's so out there for anything done around this time. I mean, I can't. I, I can't think of a filmmaker that did something quite that out there as far as shots go, in 1946. Um, uh, what about the uh, what about the bit? Another bit, maybe proving that it's all in his head, is when Conductor 71 is like, "Do you like chess?" And he's like, yes. And he's like, well, we can play chess every day. And then later on, Peter is playing chess with June when he shows up. Yes. So yeah. I think that was... A little connection there. Yeah. I don't understand why everybody else in heaven seems to be stuck in the clothes that they were brought in. And that they let the doctor change from his uh, motorcycle riding outfit to a suit. I mean, Jason, he's a doctor. He is a doctor. You got to give him some But respect. even the jury are all in their ethnic stereotype slash profession stereotype clothes. Yeah. <laughs> All these, all these white men initially, and then diverse American men. Well, the jury is diverse at first from different countries. Well, they're all they, f- what four of the five are white guys and one uh, oh, is that, Chinese okay. guy. Okay, and they were all people that were fucked over by the British Empire. And then, and then when he asks for Americans, they're Americans of different ethnicities. Different ethnicities, yes. Yeah. So much, uh, much more diverse and reflective of America. It's kind of a progressive message. Yeah, honestly, absolutely. For in the sure. middle of this movie in 1946. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense, especially in a post-war era where it's like, we all got through this together. You know? What about the line where June says to the doctor, I think he's fascinating. <laughs> and, uh, or, or he's, no, sorry, the doctor says, I think he's fascinating. And she says, so do I. And he goes, medically, not biologically. Uh, uh, that's a fun 1946 humor. Coded. Code that sex. 
And then, of course, at the end, it's all solved by the two of them proving that they're willing to die for each other. Yeah, I, I like that ending. Yeah, where, where David Niven, Peter, basically says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then uh, June actually goes so far as to be like, no, and starts walking up the stairs with them. And then eventually they stop. And it's like, all right, you proved it. Yeah, well, they're basically, yeah, they basically say, like, June, would you die for him? Yeah. And she says, I absolutely would take his place. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so they and at that point, uh, Abraham concedes his point. He's like, "Yep, they love each other." Another thing I just noted, I just realized reading my notes here. Um, you know how early in the movie they say, "Oh, whenever there's a mistake in the other world, all these bells will go off." Yeah, um, that comes back. Yeah, because so, isn't isn't he try to ring the bell when when uh, Conductor Seventy One shows up? Isn't that the plan? Well, no, there's this, uh, maybe, but I know there's a scene later on just after the doctor has died where Peter's asking for the doctor and you can hear the bells ringing in the background. Yes. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So, like, everything's gone wrong at that point. Absolutely. The operating room is completely white. Um, The the nurses standing over him almost look like they're wearing halos. The white on their on their heads. Obviously, it's the gear that they would wear, but it still has a, a a look of like you know heavenly and clearly intended. Yep. Um, I like how the pause effect is done naturally yeah. because you can tell that they're that they're doing tableaus rather than being like a video effect. Because Kim Hunter, even like you can see her trembling a little bit, yeah. like a tiny little bit. You can see a tiny little bit of movement, and it's like I like how they just went for that. They just made it look like like a little sloppy, but in a good way. And that's hard to do for a healthy, sober actor. You think about back in 1946, these people were all degenerate drunks. So can you imagine trying to hold still as a degenerate drunk like Kim Hunter and David Niven most likely were? <laughs> I mean, I don't know about Kim Hunter, but I know if David Niven was given the scene, he'd have a hard time. <laughs> uh, and, and oh man, and you talked about this trial scene. So mm. many extras. So many extras. And th- again, it's 1946. They had to hire that many extras. <laughs> this is not a... Uh, but it's the thing. They probably had lots of American servicemen hanging around. They were able to draft into uh, being extras. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, my other question is, my other thing is, we talked, we listened earlier, this is a while ago, but we listened to the U.S., uh, the the American lawyer playing the clip of a cricket game. Yeah. And uh, the doctor playing a clip of Frank Sinatra yeah. singing a song that they both dismiss as terrible. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is such a funny I thing. I don't understand it. Neither do I. I just think it's such a funny thing. A Frank Sinatra song. Yeah, that, that, was like the, that was like the cutting edge of like the kids' pop culture in 1946 was Frank Sinatra going dooby-dooby-doo-ah. Because, I mean, this is a guy who's like, you know, personal life aside, he's held in a like high esteem. Oh, yeah. He's an amazing, amazing singer. As a legendary com- yeah, yeah, these singer. days he's a fucking legend, but at that time he was like, he may as well have been like Justin uh, Bieber. It just reminds me of uh, when we watched Goldfinger and Sean Connery slagged at the Beatles yes. in that one scene. <laughs> this is pretty fun. I hate the Beatles. Yeah, though the Beatles don't even sound good without without headphone earmuffs or whatever. Oh, yes, okay. you're so funny, you old fuck. Um, and the last thing I actually want to note is that... I- June is from Boston. Boston, Mass. Right? A super-duper piece soap of a fog. In love with a Brit. Yes. And I mean, Boston Tea Party. Boston is the birthplace of the revolution, my friend. That's that's it right there. Irony. Irony of ironies. A truly star-crossed lovers. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I love that. And, it, I mean, you could argue, you know, they really, they kind of lean into it. But I think it's done in a in a very uh, a cool way. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing about this movie that gets me 
it's just how good David Niven is. I gotta give him oh, props. Yeah. I, I haven't seen too many things with David Niven over the years. I, I really only knew him specifically because he was in that uh, uh, Casino Royale spoof. Is he not in like the Pink Panther movie? A few of them, a couple of them. He would have been a good Clouseau if uh, I don't know. I mean, Clouseau had been available. I think he's his boss or something. I'm pretty sure. Maybe David I, I, like I say, I I know I've seen him and stuff. I just hadn't really considered him. But he's so good in this movie. He's so young. He's so vital. He's so charismatic. Um. So I've got. Uh, do you have any other bits and bobs? No, that was all my bits and bobs. Okay, so I have some bad news. This this gets nothing. Wow. This no Oscars. Hmm. Um, the Baftas were not around till the following year, so it loses out on that. Uh, this is a movie that gets rediscovered later in the years for sure. Yeah. But I want to talk about the impact on this movie had on culture because at the 2012 Summer Olympics, uh, they played the scene where you know Peter asked June her name. It was used in it was used as part of the opening ceremony. Wow. Um, J.K. Rowling and Daniel Radcliffe, while discussing the near-death or afterlife scenes from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two, both said that this film was their favorite. Well, it makes and, sense because I think it's similar where he's got like a big like audience of people there and he's kind of having to defend his case. Yep. And yeah, it, yeah exactly. And it was in, in, in both their minds while they were working on the scenes in, in that movie. Um, there's actually an image that t- they took from this film that's been used in a set of postage stamps to celebrate great, uh, great British films. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the ending scene of the 2011 film Captain America actually has a, a reference to a matter of life and death. Really? Yeah. Bill and Ted's bogus journey <laughs> contains course. a scene which utilizes the original staircase. Wow. Yeah. I didn't so, realize that. That the staircase was still around in 1991 or whatever. The same staircase. Crazy. Where they're addressing watch, God. I, I have to watch Bogus Journey again. I haven't seen Bogus Journey in years. And I watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure a few months back on TV. But yeah, I got to go through because the third one's coming out very soon. So here's the crazy thing. There's two statues at the base of the staircase. Bill and Ted? No, no this is in Bill <laughs> oh. and Ted. One is Michael Powell. Yeah. And one is David Niven. Oh, nice. So that's the, the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey references this movie. Well, they also uh, that makes sense because they also reference like Seventh Seal and, and a bunch of shit in that movie. But I think in 1991, no, not many people. No, no, were aware it wasn't of this. like that was available at your local blockbuster front and center. So actually, I talked about the budget of this movie maybe not being so high, but I'm looking at it now, and this was a very big budget movie. This cost six hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Who doggy? That's a lot of money in 1946. In 1946, yeah. I mean, well, if the three thousand pounds was a hundred thousand pounds, that's a lot of pounds. This movie made in the U.S. I only have the U.S. numbers. Uh, this movie made one point seven five million dollars in the U.S. Well, that's a good chunk of its budget, anyways. I mean, it, and it must have made some better. more in Britain. I think it did much better in Britain. Um, so much so that it had an impact on culture, Jason. And I'm actually going to play a clip now. And this is from a sketch comedy show in Britain called Big Train. Mm. Um, you'll notice Simon Pegg is one of the people in, in this sketch. Nice. And they actually parodied, parodied a scene from A Matter of Life and Death, uh, one that, I mean, you'll never forget when you watch the movie. So let's, let's take a listen now to this little parody. These cinematically literate sketch artists. Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Hello? Hello? Are you back there someone here? Hello? What's your position? Hard to tell, really. The instrument panel's taking a bit of a beating. Like the rest of us, I suppose. What's your name? Say again? Gotta put a name to the voice. Otherwise, it's just like listening to the radio. Blue Airs and his orchestra. I like dance bands, but I'd much rather be speaking to a pretty girl like you. I'm not so pretty. Oh, I bet you are. What's your name? Helen. 
Right, Helen. I don't have much time, so I've got to be quick. Name, David Harcroft. Frank, like lieutenant. Conservative by nature, labor by experience. I've got an aversion to classical music with the exception of Elgar. David, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there. I've got another doomed airman on a different line. Eric, Helen here again. How are you getting on there? Fine, thanks, Helen. I want to open the boat race this year. <laughs> a mother making stones in the kitchen. A father in the garden tending his roses. Was it really early last summer? Alan, Helen here again. Helen, hello! Josh, I bet you're pretty. I wish I could see you. If I could see you, I'd pepper sweet kisses all over your pretty little face. Do you hear me? It's wasted on me, old boy. <laughs> I'm here, David. Helen, I haven't got much time. There's something I want to know before I die. Do you think someone like you could ever love a crusty old flyboy like me? You know I could, David. Girls <laughs> <laughs> of my time, maybe even loved a few. But give me a crusty old flyboy any day of the week. I say, can someone put Helen back on? Hello? Hello? I think she's gone. Oh, last. Oh, well. Better start screaming, I suppose. I suppose we'd better. <laughs> that show was produced by someone you um i know struggle with a lot uh graham lineham oh wow that yeah okay yeah. That, that that felt like uh, one of his uh, uh yeah. sketch shows one of those guys that you kind of have to forget about kind of a garbage person he is yeah, garbage person but very talented comedy writer yeah <laughs> So I just wanted to play that for you. Um, I, I hope that was a treat. It was. It was lovely. Um, but Jason, tell us, tell us, a matter of life and death. What did you think? Uh, it's a matter of good and great. Okay. Put that on the back of the fucking box. No, I really like this movie a lot. Uh, um, it, I've seen plenty of these types of movies in my life. You know, uh, a Michael, I, I guess. Yeah, this is as good as Michael. <laughs> it's just like Michael. Yeah. Um, but like you know these movies of like afterlife and everything, and this was probably the most interesting one I've mm-hmm. seen, and it's just a really solid movie. And of course, as we said, the production design of the whole thing absolutely stunning and holds up even today, and is worth watching. And I highly, highly recommend this movie uh, to anybody who enjoys movies about the afterlife and uh, angel wings packaged in cellophane. I do like that. Yeah, detail it's a nice, nice thing that they're all like on racks at the very beginning of the movie, <laughs> waiting for people to come pick them up. Yeah, it's very, it's very uh, industrial. I like it. Very like organized. It. Um, so, would you say that this is your favorite of the Powell and Pressburger so far? Yeah, I might. I would say probably. Yeah, okay. for sure. Um, I certainly enjoyed it the most. Yeah. Um, and I, and I mean, this is for me, and this is coming from someone who really liked the red shoes. Um, and I liked Black Narcissus as well. Mm-hmm. I haven't disliked any of their movies so far. Um, this is this is my favorite one. Um, I'm not going to say anything yet because I'm not sure yet. But this might skyrocket to the top of my list. Yeah, this it's is definitely going to be uh, up there. I would very, say very very close for me. I thought about what's at the top right now mm. for me, and I think for you too, with Lawrence of Arabia. It's definitely the conversation. And yeah, I'm just like, I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about Brief Encounter, which we yeah, talked about earlier. This, yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, this is, if if not number one, it's probably in the top five. It's gotta be. We'll, it's, we'll, we'll see that when we get there. We'll see We still have 40 or so movies left. That's true. You know, it could get knocked out of there. Right. Else, but These 40 movies could all be better than this movie. You know, considering Carry On Up the Kyber is one of them, <laughs> I agree with you. 100%. Yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I think too. This movie is fucking fantastic and it holds up and it still looks good. It doesn't look dated at all. And Don't hesitate. If you want to watch a good movie, just watch this movie. Watch it. Watch it. Find it. Watch it. Enjoy. No qualifiers. Beautiful color. Beautiful black and white. Wonderful David Niven. Absolutely stunning Kim Hunter. Kim Hunter. Marius scoring. Everybody in this movie is knocking it out of the park. Watch it today. Hoopla.com. <laughs> I don't know if it's there. But Jason, this time we usually roll the dice. and we Normally. Are, normally that's what we do. We are continuing with the list, though. We're not yes. venturing off. Uh, but because... I don't want to spoil it in case something doesn't work out, but we had to do a little rearranging, and we're going to be talking about a movie on the list that we just kind of picked off the list. Yes. And it's going to be number 88 on the list, and it's A Hard Day's Night, the film starring the Beatles. The Beatles, you say? The Beatles. Oh, the Beatles. I hate the Beatles. Ladies and gentlemen. Bunch of wankers. Oh, no. The Beatles. Get Sean Connery out of here. Ah, I don't like you and I don't like the Beatles. Goodbye. (sighs) Wow. He spit on the floor, the asshole. So, yeah. So, next week, we are going to check out a film that I've never seen. I haven't uh, either. And you've never seen. uh, 1964. Possibly one of the earliest forms of music video. Yeah. Uh, from what I've heard of it over the years. I, I remember seeing the Beatles anthology documentary years ago and they talked about this, but I don't remember anything else about it other than them running around. I imagine I'll like it because I like the songs. I know we're right at the end, but I really have to pee. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, well, Brendan's going to pee. Let me just say, <laughs> you can find us on Facebook. Just uh, get on Facebook there. Search for Screen and Country. You can find Brendan uh, out on the street at night, uh, applying his wares for a dollar at a time. You can find me, Jason D. McLeod, on Twitter. That's at Jason D. McLeod. Check me out. I like to uh, retweet stuff that I find funny. I like to sometimes post some thoughts. Uh, Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're angry uh, about work. But it's all me. So if you want me and all me all the time, Check it out. Twitter at Jason D. McLeod. But that's it for this week. We had a grand old time talking about uh, uh, this movie, A Matter of Life and Death, uh, David Niven, Kim Hunter. What a wonderful movie, guys. Let's be real. Just you and me right now. Brendan's out of the room. Brendan's peeing. Just between you and me, this is a really good fucking movie. And don't let Brendan tell you different. I know he was really, really hot on it. Uh, but sometimes he's different off the podcast. Okay, he's coming back now, so it's just you and me. Uh, this is, don't, don't, don't say anything. Oh, yeah, I'm, coming, I'm back. I'm assuming nothing happened while no, I was No, no, everything's fine. So with that said... So with that said... I just have to say to you, Jason, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Bye. Bye. I'm dead. Jason, talk to me. You're pretty. I'll defend you with my prettiness. Wake up in the morning and I'll raise my weary hair. I've got an old coat for a pillow and the earth was last night's bed. I don't know where I'm going. Only I know where I've been. I'm a devil on the run. A six-gun
Stable on what Kane was the able Mr. Catch me 